In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, this gospel reading from Mark that we just heard Courtney read and this sermon are both things that are for anyone who has ever experienced a bit of chaos in their lives. Some stress and confusion and concern that swirl around into a climax of overwhelming helplessness and despair. Sounds fun. Um, But if you're like me, this also sounds sadly familiar. It sounds like something that happens in my life from time to time. Chaos of sleepless nights with a newborn, the panic of some bad news being received in a doctor's office or upon opening an envelope, the worry that accompanies a test or a date or just about any significant decision along your life. These moments, they can be difficult, they can be stressful, to say the least. But when you begin to fold them on top of one another, when they mix and compete for the scary place at the forefront of your mind, when they all seem to happen at the same time, that is what we call chaos. And for many, it's just what we call life. But chaos doesn't always actually have to look and feel like some sort of a storm. Chaos can be the long and slow burn of loneliness or the fog of depression or the distant worry that we might have for a loved one that over time can creep and creep into the center of your life and thoughts. No matter what form chaos takes, I think it's fair to say that it always takes away our sense of control and it replaces that false sense of control with a profound sense of helplessness. The content and the structure of this long reading from Mark today is full of these emotions and experiences of chaos. Now, it's a really long reading. Thank you, Courtney, for reading it to us. And perhaps you found it a little bit long-winded and rambling, and for that reason, chaotic. But if we take a closer look at it, I think that we might find something within it that is profound and helpful for all of us. What we see in this reading is we see Jesus uh, once again walking alongside the sea, and a leader from a local synagogue named Jairus comes up to him and asks for help and for healing for his little girl, for his daughter, who's so sick that she's near death. He's desperate for understandable reasons. And Jesus says, sure, and they keep walking. But it's interesting that Jesus' response isn't one of hurry. He doesn't hop in an ambulance and sort of throw on the siren and say, let's get to it. Where's your house, Jairus? That he simply continues to walk, and he continues to encounter more and more people who, just like Jairus, just like his daughter, are also in need. And as he's walking, a woman in great need comes up to Jesus and Uh, This is someone who, it says, has been bleeding, has been hemorrhaging, uh, and without relief, despite all of her best efforts, for 12 years now. This is something that, for cultural and religious reasons, would have deemed her, who as a woman is already seen as someone with lesser status, uh, she would be seen, because of her bleeding, as someone who was unclean and unfit to participate in just about any of the significant religious and social aspects and life of their community. 
She'd been living a life of fear and isolation for over a decade now. And today she stepped into an even more chaotic scene where this crowd of people is going to try and save this dying child. Mark does an incredible job of building the tension here. And if you stop and think at this point about the passage and you close your eyes and you sort of dwell on it, the chaos and the anxiety of all of it is nearly enough to overcome you simply as a reader, or at least it has that effect on me. Thankfully, it doesn't end without a resolution. All of this uh, talk and all of these thinking, all of these thoughts uh, about suffering, my mind, um, when I'm thinking about Scripture, quickly goes to the book of Job, that great uh, but depressing <laughs> uh, but beautiful long book in the Old Testament um, where Job is put through as much or more suffering than anyone seems to have ever known. And uh, it's not until much later in the book, in one of the later chapters, that he addresses God and sort of calls God into the dock um, and airs his complaints to God, if you will. And God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And God goes on to sort of remind Job who God is, that he is the creator. Um, there would be nothing if it wasn't for me. Expressing his profound control and providence over all these things. It's actually the longest uh, speech of God, if you will, throughout all of Scripture. And it happens to be on the topic of suffering and God's relation to or presence with those who suffer. It is interesting in and of itself. Like I said, it's a speech that focuses on God as creator, uh, having providence over all the sea, all the birds, the wind, and most importantly, you and me. It's a powerful passage that allows us to hear that God is concerned with every bit of everything and every one that he has made, even Job, who is in the midst of suffering. It's a passage that has brought some peace to many people's lives for thousands of years now. But I bring this up in order to argue that as famous as this book and this passage and this story is with Job and God and his friends, I think it pales in comparison to what we see Jesus doing in the Gospel of Mark today. Jesus in this chaotic story. Ironically, I wrote this sermon in the midst of a bit of a busy and chaotic week at work. Um, it's actually not so ironic if you think about it. We as preachers often preach about the things that we're going through. That's sort of no spoiler there. Uh, they often say a good preacher is supposed to preach to themselves first or else they're supposed to believe what they preach. If they don't, then who else will believe it and who else will feel spoken to? Well, this sermon. Uh, is about the chaos of life. Uh, and so much of the experience of writing about chaos just sort of doubled down the chaos that I was feeling. It sort of hit me center mass to the point in which I actually had to get up from my desk and walk away and, and take a walk and take a deep breath. Many deep breaths. I had to pull out all of my stress reduction practices that I've learned over the years. And they helped at times. 
I actually went and got a haircut just a couple of hours ago when I was still trying to finish writing the sermon. And sitting there, I thought this would be relaxing. I can take my mind off things. But of course, all I did was sit there and think, I'm going to run out of time. I'm going to be late. This is stressful. This is even more chaotic. Um, But you know, I still, after all of the the breathing exercises, the walk, the haircut, uh, I could have listened to all the sermons in the world. I could have listened to all the guided meditations that I wanted to. But at the end of the day, I still would have had to go back up into my office and finish writing this sermon. I still had my life to live. My life that's not any different than any of yours, periodically full of moments of chaos. I could do all the deep breathing, all that I wanted, but this is still the reality that we're faced with. What I felt like I needed in that moment, and what I think that this passage is ultimately getting at, is that what we need is someone or something who can save us, who can save us from the suffering of life, to save us from ourselves, to reach in and transform our situation and our very lives themselves. That passage from Job can be a great comfort. It can remind us that God is in control, and the words coming from God himself to Job, the king of suffering, assure us that God is in control. We're not alone in our suffering. But God doesn't only speak to us. He isn't only concerned with us and our suffering, with our pain and the chaos that surrounds us. God doesn't just speak. As we see in this gospel passage, God acts. He doesn't just speak. God acts. The woman who reaches out to simply touch Jesus' cloak, this woman who's been bleeding and suffering for 12 years, she does so. She touches his cloak, and Jesus stops, and she's healed instantly. But that's not all. Remember, uh, you have Jairus who's standing there, and he must be thinking, Jesus, what in the world are you doing? Why are you stopping? We have to go. My daughter is dying, for goodness sake. And then Jairus does get this terrible news that they have delayed, and that it is too late. His daughter is dead. Jairus, who'd faithfully come to Jesus for help, was waiting for Jesus to answer his cries and intervene. But Jesus was on his own timeline. But it ends up that it was a timeline that doesn't end with death. Instead, Jesus continues on to Jairus' house, where he finds the girl and tells her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, get up. And immediately, the girl who had once been dead got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. Jesus acts. And this woman and this little girl are raised up from their figurative and literal graves. The chaos is overcome, not with words, but with Jesus' very hand, with Jesus' touch. One real quick detail that I'll sort of end with, and that I think brings much of this chaos Uh, and maybe this chaotic sermon together, is this detail at the end there where it says after Jesus raises this girl from the dead that she was 12 years of age. Remember, the woman, too, had been hemorrhaging, had been bleeding for 12 years. The entirety of this girl's life 
this woman had been going through unspeakable suffering. I think that this provides an interesting picture of what life with Jesus looks like for these two daughters of Israel, if you will. In Jesus, in the midst of suffering and all of the chaos of life, Jesus is in complete control. And he's providing perfect healing and life everlasting to these two people. This is what we're given in Jesus, and this is what we're given through his ultimate sacrifice for us all. Because remember, when the woman touches Jesus' cloak, when she touches Jesus in the midst of the chaotic scene, with Jesus on his way to heal this dying little girl, when she touches his cloak, he stops. He not only looks at her, he gives her some of his precious time and attention, meeting her where she is, in a particular time and place of need and desperation. Jesus doesn't just stop, but he gives up something for her, something to her, something of himself, which is another way of saying he sacrifices for her. The text says that immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? There's an exchange here. Jesus has given something of himself to this woman in the midst of suffering, in the midst of chaos, in order for her to be saved and healed. There's a cost. Jesus' loss is her gain. He has given up part of himself for her. And this is ultimately the gospel message for all of us. Because ultimately what this is pointing us to is, of course, Jesus giving up of himself entirely on the cross for each and every one of us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of whatever chaos you feel swirling about you, Jesus has acted. Jesus has given up his very life so that you and I may be healed from the ultimate chaos of sin and death. Our panic and frustrations, our fears and disordered ways of living, all of it has been taken into the hands of Jesus, and all of us have been healed by his blood. So, take a deep breath, but know that when you come up from air, Jesus is with you, and Jesus is greater than any chaos you could ever throw at him.